Howdy. You're listening to Yolidarity, a podcast by the North Texas Democratic Socialists of America. Howdy, y'all. You're listening to the Socialist Feminist Housing Takeover, the very first episode of DSA North Texas's brand new podcast. My name is April. I am the chair of the Socialist Feminist Work Group here in North Texas. I wanted to give everyone a little bit of perspective on why I chose to focus the entire general meeting that we took over on housing. About four years ago, um, at the end of 2016, I found myself without a job. I was running out of unemployment. I was living in one room of a house. My name was not on the lease. Um, and I was running out of food, quite honestly. I was on the verge of being kicked out by the people whose names were on the lease. Um, and to put a little icing on top of my cake of bad circumstance, I had been assaulted, sexually assaulted, the year before. And the person who was guilty of that assault was stalking and terrorizing me at the house where I lived. I knew that I needed to make a move, but I didn't know what I could do. Just by sheer luck, in 2017, I was able to find a job and then find housing. And I know that there's nothing wrong or right that I did in that situation that leads me to the life that I have today. It was sheer luck. I believe that many people across the country are facing similar circumstances. And I believe housing is a life or death situation that we all should be organizing around. It is for this reason that I organized this panel of powerful speakers in order to educate North Texas's DSA general body to what is going on so that we can get fired up about solving the problem. Talk about housing, how it relates to each and every one individual in this room, and we want to talk about housing through a socialist feminist lens. So what I'm going to be trying to do during this meeting is A, get you some information about what is happening in your hood in Texas. B, I'm going to try to tie this to a little historical context about capitalism and how anti-feminist it is in nature. And then we're going to get a little insider knowledge about some people who have been doing some fantastic work in our communities around Texas. And instead of, as an organization in North Texas saying, I'm sure someone else will do it, they're going to teach us how to do it ourselves so that all of our comrades have a safe, clean, affordable place to live. So we're going to start with a small housing quiz. I just want to know and for you to know that this applies to you and it's pretty important. All right, so the first question on the housing quiz is, do you own property? Is the title in your name? Um, nobody can take it from you. You don't make any payments, so there's no mishap with your mortgage. 
Um, your Grammy gave it to you. You know it's in your name. Nobody's going to contest it. Um, it's a great house. There are no repairs that need to be made to it. It's in good standing in a great neighborhood in case you decide to have children um, so they can go to good schools. So if you're in that category where nothing could happen to you, then maybe, maybe you're safe. That's cool. Wait, if it's paid for, what if you had like an, what if there was like a tornado or something, right? And then you also had to pay property taxes because you have to pay that to the city for like the rest of your, you know, life here in this ugh, place that is capitalist in nature and we uh, make a commodity out of housing so that people won't have places to live. It's cool. All right, so if you don't think in the future with inflation that you would be able to possibly take a like huge hit like flooding. There's this thing going on right now. Um, it's called climate change. And so a lot of bad things like in nature can happen in your house, like a tornado or a flood or something. I'm pretty sure some comrades in Houston have something to do with that. Um, if you rent, can you pay all of your rent with one paycheck? Not saving from one paycheck to the next to do it, just outright. All right, rent's paid. Did you just put $5 worth of gas in your tank to go to work? Um, that's not good, right? You're not doing well here. If anything happens, what if you get sick? You don't have money to do anything once your rent is paid. The rent is too goddamn high. Um, do you find yourself on a strict budget? Are you like, oh, I can't go out to eat. I don't know about groceries. Um, my kid's just going to have to do something for school supplies. Just use your blood. Okay, do you have a roommate? What if that roommate or partner just left? I don't want them to leave, right? But like, what if it happened? Could you just stick it on your own? Uh, and if you got fired tomorrow without any help, with no severance, what's the possibility? How long do you think you'd be able to pay your rent until you got kicked out? Oh, you have savings? Um, I'd, I don't really have savings, um, and I'm proud to say that. Um, but if you have savings, how long would it take you to run through all of them if you had no job? Um, so does this apply to everyone in this room? Please give me a, a little applause if any of those things apply to you. Excellent. You're in the right place. We're going to learn a little bit about housing. So have you ever thought about like rent control? Like, do you think it's always been this hard to find a place to live? Um, what if it wasn't like all of your paycheck that went to rent? What if, you know, it was like a lot less of that? Would you be more apt to quit your job to do something you like? Like if you knew you weren't going to be homeless if you left? What if you wanted to buy property, that fancy property we were talking about in the front? If you can't save because you're giving all your money to like multi-billionaires who own the land, how are you supposed to get ahead? You could live alone, it's beautiful. <laughs> but like, what if your partner's abusive and you can't afford to leave them? What if you have kids? What would happen if you had enough money to make those choices that could save your life that could change your children's lives that could change what if you weren't so preoccupied with this 
that you could help members in your community live better lives. All that can be done if we stop giving all of our money to people who already have plenty of fucking money. So whenever I try to budget, and this is the last thing I'll say about the housing quiz before I introduce our first guest, is that whenever I am like, oh, April, you're spending too much. What are you doing? You don't have a grasp on your finances. I remember that there are some people in this world that never fucking worry about rent. They've never had to. They never worked up, woke up one day and said, I can only put $2 in my gas tank to go to work today. They've never woken up and said, I don't need that much hamburger meat. I can wait until next payday. And you shouldn't have to either. And none of our comrades should have to do that. But we've got to work to make it a better world. And we have to know that this is a priority as much as any other issue facing socialists today. Now, I'd like to introduce our first guest. Finnegan Jones is the executive director and co-founder of Transcendence International, which now has support group meetings for transgender individuals and for friends, families, and allies in six cities throughout Texas and Oklahoma. He serves as a leader in the transgender community of DFW as a consultant to other LGBTQ communities outside of Texas. And I've asked Finn to come here today to speak with us about a lot of the challenges that are going on in our community with our trans brothers and sisters with regard to housing. Please welcome Finnegan Jones. Thank you, April. Wow, you are taller than me. Everybody's taller than me, though. <laughs> How are y'all doing today? Y'all can call me Finn. I go by Finnegan uh, professionally. Um, so yeah, I, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what we do, and then I'll talk to you a little bit about uh, the topic today. Um, so Transcendence International was started in 2012. Um, it was started with a couple of folks, uh, and for me, it was a uh, an act of love because my spouse, my wife Susan, uh, when I began transitioning from female to male, I'm trans. Um, she had no support from anybody at all as the spouse of a trans person. There were lots and lots of groups out there for individuals who were trans or identified as gender diverse or trans, but there was nothing for family members. And when I did a bunch of research around the United States, I went, why is this not happening? This makes no sense. Um, so I built a tiny little group for her in Fort Worth and it has now blown up. It's in the last seven years, we have, we have now, we now have uh, five, Five support groups in Texas. We have one in Oklahoma City. We have one in, uh, in Sydney, in New South Wales, Australia. And Reno, Nevada actually launches this month as well, at the end of this month. So, <laughs> thank you. And I was just telling them on Friday, we were just asked by the Tarrant County Department of Health to partner with them to start creating support groups for family members of folks living with and uh, passing of HIV and AIDS. So we're gonna now be working on creating support groups for that as well now. Um, and it's just, it, this is a problem across our country, supporting the, me, the family members of folks who are trans or LGE or living with HIV or AIDS or anything else. Um, what we have found in the seven, eight years that we've been doing this is the more you involve the family in that support circle 
and create that support circle, the healthier the individual is and the better they thrive and the better they prosper in this, in this country. Um, so, so we have set out to create that. We also now have a program called The Umbrella uh, and the umbrella is now meeting our physical needs. Uh, so we just opened a brand new resale shop over in Tarrant County. Uh, and as you can imagine, trans folks have a lot of clothing that they donate once they start transitioning, right? Um, and they were bringing them to the meetings and we'd have piles of clothes. And then we're like, where do we take all these clothes? Uh, so now we have our own resale store and that's helping support and fund uh, that program, the umbrella. So you, the hours are posted online. You can find the umbrella Facebook page. Um, on, on Facebook and you can see the hours for our shop and see how maybe you can help and volunteer as well. We also have a house over in Haltom City that we are trying to bring up to code to be able to house more homeless trans folks and marginalized trans folks temporarily. So we're doing a lot of work over there in Tarrant County. We uh, helped create the Trans Wellness Program uh, through AIDS Outreach Center uh, which now our trans folks can, 18 and up, can go over there, get a free appointment with a nurse practitioner, free blood work, and free mental health care. Um, and all of this is needed because we are the most marginalized of the entire acronym. Uh, the trans community is the, le the least employed, the least insured, the least housed, the least everything. If you look at statistics, uh, you can pull up a lot of data from the Williams Institute and WPATH, World Professional Association for Transgender Health, and you can see all of these studies that they've done. Um, and every single percentage is 30 or above. Every single percentage, suicide rate, homeless rate, human trafficking, all of it. Did y'all know that the, if you look at the percentages for the homeless youth, 41% of them identify as LGBTQ, 47% of the kids who are human trafficked are LGBTQ. And why is that happening? Because parents are kicking them out of their home, right? Within 24 to 48 hours, the human traffickers pick them up and you'll never see them again. And that's, that's what I'm helping to try and prevent. Um, as far as housing goes right now, the big conversation, uh, I was telling April, is the big conversation right now for as far as housing for trans folks it are the shelters, the homeless shelters in this country. In this area, there are only two shelters that will accept trans women. Only two. One's in Arlington, and I think one's in here in, here in Dallas. Only two. If, if, if a trans woman goes to a homeless shelter they, that does not accept trans women, they will try and put them on the men's side. And that is so detrimental. It also, our mental health uh, facilities here in this area. Um, we have a lot of suicidal ideation in our community. Hmm, I wonder why. <laughs> and when a trans person goes to one of these mental health places or a teenager, they end up putting them on the side that they of their birth, right? Of what's d denoted on their birth certificate. And if they're in there for suicidal ideation, don't you think that's going to make them worse? It just doesn't make any sense. Everything is going backwards um, when it comes to our community. So right now, around housing, Ben Carson, of course, is trying to make it illegal for shelters. It's basically legal discrimination. It's legal discrimination based on religious whatever you think, right? On your religious preference. 
My wife is a minister, y'all. <laughs> My wife would never, never discriminate against somebody because of their gender identity, the color of their skin, their heritage, wherever. It doesn't matter. And, and if, you, if you discriminate against somebody because of your religious preference, what is that? That makes no sense. That's completely opposite of what you're supposed to do, right? As far as I know, I'm not religious. My wife is, I'm not. We have great conversations, as you can imagine. <laughs> but, so I, so some of you may know, I know Lee Daughtery don't, I, I ran for the Texas House of Representatives in Texas in 2018. I actually made history in Texas. I'm the first transgender person to win a, an, an elective, uh, uh, electoral uh, vote uh, because I won my primary. Uncontested, but a win, and a win, a win is a win, right? <laughs> um, and I had no, I had never run for anything in my life, ever. When Lee first approached me, I was like, you're crazy. There's no way, are you nuts? And I said, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. Um, but I did it anyway, because I had spent the year before fighting our Texas legislation over bathroom bills, right? The bathroom bills. Then the, in 2019, they came up, came at, with, with us at, with the Chick-fil-A bill, right? We had 21 anti-LGBTQ bills here in Texas. A lot of people don't even know that. But we had 21, no, 22. We beat 21 of them. The only one that passed was the Chick-fil-A one. And by the time they were done, it had no teeth because our lobbyists were able to get it to the point that it really had no teeth, um, even though it was passed. Um, but when I ran for office, I can tell you, I was the probably the poorest candidate out there. <laughs> I had no money at all, none. I didn't even have any money when I signed my name on the dotted line. I had no money, but I knew that change had to happen. I knew change had to happen. And if my voice is out there and my face is out there and I'm a trans representative, you know, representing my community, then people will learn from me. Whether they agree with me or not, they're going to learn from me. Um, I didn't win, of course, uh, but I came damn close. I got 44%. And that's pretty damn good for a trans person uh, in Texas for the first time running for the House in Texas. Um, so now Lisa Simmons has stepped up. She's the head of the NAACP in Arlington. She's going to be running for HD94. So if you're in that area, please, please, please support her. Um, but as far as housing goes, you know, I hear stories from trans folks all the time that say, Finn, I went to go look at a house uh, in my neighborhood, and this is a, a couple. One is trans, one is, one is uh, cisgender female, right? So they appear to be a lesbian couple. And they'll go look at a house in their neighborhood that happens to have an HOA, right? Before they can even walk in the door, they've got neighbors just staring at them. Then they end up having letters, you know, against them moving into that neighborhood. Then all of a sudden the realtor says, oh, no, it's already been sold. Or no, we have a contract on it. That's what's happening. It's happening in apartment complexes as well. Our trans folks walk in to rent an apartment and they're turned away. They have an income that pays a quarter, at least a quarter of their rent. They have a good job, all of it. And yet they're being turned away, which is illegal. It's illegal. It's supposed to be illegal in the state of Texas, right? So those are the things that are happening. Um, right now, because the trans community is so unemployed, we have a huge number of homeless people. Uh, even in the Dallas area, 
We have lots and lots of homeless trans folks in the Dallas area that we're trying to work with and trying to find some kind of housing situation for them. Now we're actually working on writing up a new program to ask, you know, just citizens like you, if you have an extra room, can you rent it out? If you have a, a, you know, a garage apartment, can you rent it out? We'll help supplement the income for it. Um, that's how desperate we are to try and get some of these folks into a system, into some kind of safe place so that they can't, they have the ability to actually thrive, to actually get a good job, to get the, their documents changed. So please, when you're voting, look at the down ballot too. Pay attention to the judges that you're voting for. They have a huge influence on being able to get our name and gender markers changed in the state of Texas. They have influence on all of this. So pay attention to the judges you're, working, you're voting for, right? Please pay attention to the House representatives that you're voting for. We have got to flip the House. And I'm just going to do my little... We have got to flip the house, y'all. We need nine seats to flip the house and keep the ones we have. If we can do that, we can keep these, law, these bills out, right? We won't have to repeat another 2017 and 2019. I was at the Capitol for 24 hours testifying against the Chick-fil-A bill. I walked in there at 7.30 in the morning. I walked out at 6.30 the next morning, literally. I testified at 3.30 in the morning. That's how dedicated I am to this community. And I beg everyone, please start paying attention to what you're looking for and on your city councils as well and school boards. Pay attention to those, those elections as well because we're fighting Mansfield right now over some stuff that's going on over there. So pay attention to those bills as well. Do I have my 10 minutes up? I'm sorry. No, <laughs> I, I can talk all day. <laughs> um, but we did want to like leave a little time for a little bit of Q&A from the audience. So... Nora, if you'd put four minutes on the clock, does anybody have questions? Yeah. Oh, it's called the umbrella. The umbrella. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think so. we've actually made a name for it yet. <laughs> we just opened it in February, so, so yeah, all of that is up in front. So y'all, we're going to try to run stack so that everyone can be on mic because it is being recorded. So we want your questions to be heard. And then we also want to, so like if you have a question, just raise your hand and we'll kick it off that way. I didn't tell you beforehand, so that's not your fault. <laughs> she asked what, what the uh, name of the shop is. It's called The Umbrella. Does anyone else Anybody have else? any questions? Do y'all know what Prop 6 was? Do y'all see that Prop 6 on the Republican ballot? Do you know what the fight is going to be this year about trans kids? That's going to be the fight this year about trans kids. And I already know that they have, Krauss already has two bills up uh, ready to go for the next Texas Ledge. Uh, to criminalize doctors for helping trans kids and uh, to criminalize parents. Yep. When is the, uh, the next action day at the Capitol and how can people get involved? Um, I was just about to ask, uh, Transgender Education Network of Texas is our lobbying group for the transgender community in Texas. Uh, they'll put all those dates out there. Uh, that lobby day is usually the first day before the session um, that we all go to the Capitol and lobby. Uh, and it's usually around April sometime. Uh, but we'll get those dates out there. If y'all just pay attention to social media or, or any of the other trans organizations, we'll have all that out there. Yes? 
you have a list of people that your organization is endorsing in the elections? We are not allowed to endorse. We are a nonprofit. Recommend. We're a 501c3. No, <laughs> we stay away from that. We just encourage people to please vote. Yeah, yeah. We're we 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 like our 501c3 is just mm -mm. we don't mess with that, especially because we're a trans organization. Thank y'all. And I have cards if you want a card if you need more information. Um, and I just wanted to mention that, like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, uh, personally, Finn might be friends of someone, and, like, maybe we as an organization could, like, do some harm reduction for candidates. So we could put out that information without Finn even being involved. That's weird how that works. <laughs> so while we were brainstorming for this meeting, uh, one of our comrades uh, was, we were just shooting the shit um, and talking about feminist things and literature and uh, someone wanted to know like what the direct link was, right? And like how feminism and socialist work is intersectional. And I think sometimes we actually, we kind of pat at it, we get close to it, but we don't talk a lot about the history of how capitalism came to be about um, and what that required from society. Um, so I heard about this really cool person. Her name is Silvery F Sylvia Federici. Um, very cool. Um, actually, because I spend so much time at my eight to five job, it's like actually an eight to seven, um, I never read books. So what I'm gonna talk to you about are two very influential podcasts that I got this information from that actually allowed me to connect those dots while being angry and driving in traffic. So Sylvia Federici wrote this book, Caliban and the Witch. And essentially what it does is it takes a look at the witch trials in Europe, the beginning of capitalism, and how a lot of things that women do naturally got super criminalized, right? Um, this book is actually so powerful that on Amazon, it actually has a layout of how you can fit the book in your hand. So if there's like an anti-men's uh, right activist that is coming at you, know that you grip it right here, right? And you can like deflect them and then actually beat them <laughs> with this book. So it's very important. So important that we needed those measurements. I've literally never seen this um, for books. <laughs> so the podcast that I was listening to is called The Dig. A dude named Daniel Denver runs it, like so many great topics all like very well explained, anybody can listen to it, and it's really great. Um, so a few things that I caught from this particular podcast, before capitalism, everyone who was poor just kind of got along. Like, it was like a feudal state. Like, all the women have their children together, they did the washing together. It was very communal, right? Everyone kind of just hung out, watched the kids. Nobody was really uh, concerned with like the family unit, like mom, dad, 
children, right? That was a thing that was going on like in, you know, royal bloodlines where like everyone's super inbred and they're going to die anyway, but they have an extremely large amount of power for no apparent reason. So the logical people who are living under the system that didn't have control were just like working together. Um, none of this eight hours a day doing the same shit over and over again. Like you would like work your plot of land, right? And then you'd do something different. And like maybe you'd make clothes for the family, right? But everyone would hang out together and kind of do the things. Um, so capitalism required a couple of things. The first thing it required, obviously, was to take all the land that they were tilling on, right? Um, because people have to be dependent on the capitalist for work, right? But more importantly, the capitalists are dependent on human labor. So what's really important about human labor is that somebody has to make the people, right? And with that, a lot of different things happen, right? First of all, women now become baby factories, right? That is all you're doing. You're making the babies, you're dependent on your husband, your husband is the wage earner, right? So all the stuff that is not conducive to baby making, which the capitalists need for future workers, right, is a no-go. So like homosexuality, not really a big deal. People did it, right? But once the church gets involved with capitalists and the state, right, we make that shift. So like no two penises, that doesn't make babies. Don't do that anymore, right? Um, also, no prostitution. Like, y'all aren't trying to make babies with that. We need, you know, need it to be like a sacred religious thing. And we need you to be dependent on that. And we need you to crank out these workers. Because, like, it's back in the day and, like, people only live for, like, 30 years and they die. So we need to constantly be making them, right? And so in order to do that with taking away the land, they also have to break apart women, None of that depending on each other anymore for labor. None of the childcare, like people working all together. Um, and all of the social reproduction is now 100% dependent on the women. Now social reproduction is all the work that it takes to get ready to work, right? So even if you're a single person in your house, like you're engaged in doing social reproduction, right? Like you have to brush your teeth and wash your clothes. You've gotta do grocery shopping at some point. All those things that make you super fucking tired before you go to waste your life at your job, that is social reproduction. And in the modern Fordist family, a term that I'm gonna to get to in just a second, right? Um, that all relies on the woman. And as Sylvia Frederici says, they call it the labor of love, but it's just actual free labor and exploitation. So one of the things that I did really want to touch on and about history, Sylvia Frederici talks a lot in her book, which is Witch Hunting and Women, about the history of the word gossip, an excerpt. The history of gossip is emblematic in this context, though it follows two centuries of attacks on women at the dawn of modern England, when a term commonly indicated a close female friend turned into signifying idle, backbiting talk, that is, potentially sowing discord, the opposite of solidarity that female friendship implies and generates. 
So essentially what she's saying is before this capitalist revolution, your best friend, your gal pal that helped you do all the stuff was your gossip, right? And we know what gossip means now, and it's bad, right? We start in the educational system with training girls not to talk too much, right? That is the worst thing you can do. You're separated from your classmates. Don't speak out, keep quiet. And like there's even this thing amongst like pseudo intellectual women that we're like, oh, I'm not like other women. Like I can give directions and I like video games and I eat ice cream. So I'm not like other women. I, I don't want to be friends with those people. So. I want to tie this together a little bit into the world that we live in right now. Melinda Cooper is an author who wrote a book called Family Values Between Neoliberalism and the New Social Conservatism. And essentially what she talks about is the Fordist family, right? It's basically that a man has the right to earn enough to take care of his wife and children. And Ford was really interesting, you know, the cars, that guy. Um, really super interesting in that he was nice enough to like extend like kind of part of that to black workers. Um, he was super anti-Semitic, so but he had other problems. But listen, in this one sense, he kind of extended it to black men as well, but it was only for men. Um, and so in the, the time of, um, social welfare, right? Everything was created to keep the family together, that family base that was created just a couple hundred years ago with the beginning of capitalism, right? And all the rhetoric that you hear about the fading of society, like the fabric being torn apart, is all political rhetoric that you're fed from day one to keep that type of family super together, right? and it's all to keep capitalism running. So with all that, right, Bill Clinton comes in after Reagan, right, and actually reinforces the laws. All that baby mama drama that everybody hears all the time when you think about a black woman with like a bunch of dudes. Bill Clinton's law that changed welfare as we know it forever is about linking welfare and the ability to survive by pinning all that fiscal responsibility onto a man instead of onto the government. The government didn't want to pay for people to live good lives. So they shifted the rhetoric, they shifted the way we think about the family, and they criminalized mostly black women and women of color, right? All this stuff is new. All of this stuff are things that people have been saying for the past 10, 20, 30 years. So the last thing that I want to say before I bring up our amazing panel is that with all these laws in effect, with the wage being set so that only a person who's a man who has a family can survive, which pushes out the idea that a woman can survive on her own and makes her dependent on whoever, that means, all this stuff means, that LGBTQ liberation not fitting into the fabric of the family model, that is feminist work. Female friendship, that is feminist work. 
anything that deals with making a living on your own in this world is feminist work. Housing is feminist work. It is essential. And I'm going to bring our panelists up so that we can discuss how we can begin this work in North Texas. Panelists, come on down. <laughs> um, so everyone has a mic so that we can do this podcasting thing, right? And the way I wanted to kick it out, instead of like giving each of these ladies on International Women's Day um, an introduction that I saw fit, I wanted to give them each about a minute to talk about what they do, what their work is, um, and how it relates to housing. So whoever wants to start off, that would be awesome. I'll go first just because I'm not shy. My name is Stephanie Webb, and I do work involving information activism. What is information activism? Well, one of the things that you commonly hear, especially in any kind of activism, is, well, I didn't know that. Well, somebody has got to get the information so that people actually know why things happen the way they happen. For example, uh, the nice pretty house that we saw at the beginning, uh, single family housing was literally created for white people to separate them from black people. Literally everything that we understand about neighborhoods as we see them, as we understand them, is because of racism. It's like that meme, you know, why does that neighborhood look that way? Racism in like 72 point font. Um, so I spend a lot of my time doing, uh, doing what can be considered extremely boring work, which is looking through city minutes and basically constructing timelines and helping people understand the story of why things work the way they do, uh, because largely I'm one person, and while I have great confidence in my ability, I can't do everything that y'all do, but hopefully what people like me do is help y'all do what you do. My name's Sandy Rollins. I'm with a nonprofit group called the Texas Tenants Union. It's based here in Dallas. It's been around since the 1970s. We do tenants' rights education. Uh, people call us up all day long, every day, facing eviction, trying to get security deposits back, dealing with substandard conditions. Uh, we do free tenants' rights workshop and have since the 1970s, every Wednesday night in our Dallas office and the second Monday of the month in Tarrant County now where uh, people learn uh, basic tenants' rights and, and then uh, we do one-on-ones to try to help people learn how to effectively stand up to their landlords with whatever situation they're facing. And we work on public policy. Um, uh, the Texas legislature is where the uh, source of basic tenants' rights are or aren't, as mm. the case might be. Um, so every legislative session, we try to get bills introduced and advanced. And we do tenant organizing, uh, primarily right now related to displacement, gentrification, property closures. Um, hey, y'all. Thanks, April, so much for putting this together. It is really great to sit here alongside of a person from whose perspective I love to hear about the world. Um, Stephanie is one of my just like thinkers about built environment that I admire so much, and I just love tenant organizing. That's real power building. Um, so I appreciate this, 
this setting. My name is Heidi Sloan. I uh, organize with Austin DSA. I um, just finished a congressional run, which we did not win, uh, it's fine. Um, but I did that because I have worked alongside of people experiencing chronic homelessness in Austin and Travis County for the last seven years. I work at a nonprofit um, that provides permanent supportive housing. I lead the farming program at this nonprofit where we grow food together for the community. Um, and I got into organizing because of that experience. I um, understood that while nonprofits doing the kind of work that I get to do every day are unfortunately necessary, they are ultimately reliant on a capitalist class to fund them, to make decisions about them, to um, continue the propagation of uh, an economy that makes them necessary. And so I saw for years and years the cycle of chronic homelessness and the kinds of folks who experience that cycle. For me, the breaking point uh, was getting to understand the foster care system and the almost inevitability of children exiting foster care, uh, interacting with the justice system or with housing insecurity during the course of their lifetimes. And it frustrated the hell out of me that I could um, sit there and watch new folks um, enter into a life experience that, that my friends um, have been so profoundly traumatized and shaped by. I didn't want it anymore. Um, so I knew I either had to step back or, or go upstream and started doing housing work in Austin where housing is an issue. Um, it is. And, and have gotten to work on campaigns like the decriminalization of homelessness in Austin, the affordable housing bond, tenant organizing, um, and and have learned a ton about the complexities of the system and how it is built to keep us from providing security, from, um, from pushing back against the com commodification and competitive nature of the housing system as it is right now, when in fact we all deserve a home, we all need shelter and an environment to care for one another, to grow and to, to um, be able to thrive uh, and unfortunately, this, this kind of conversation doesn't happen often enough. So my panelists are so awesome that they answered our first question. So I'm going to do a little redirection and get a little more specific about this question. I cheated. So they kind of touched on um, gentrification, um, segregation, those kinds of issues. Um, and so with that in mind, with the light on that, at ground zero, what should we be doing to start a movement that is actually tenant organizing? Um, can you tell me a little bit about your start in organizing and what the first things you did to start those building bricks were? Okay, so uh, full disclosure, uh, I did not get to be black until I moved to East Austin mm -hmm. in the year 2013. Uh, my location in the city of Austin is very, very important because the city of Austin is basically segregated between West Austin predominantly white and East Austin predominantly uh, black and Chicano. And so basically I went from an apartment complex with like five buses, three grocery stores, a train, direct access to downtown and being able to have multiple jobs 
to the closest grocery store being a two mile walk, thank goodness I was an endurance athlete. And of course I was in an apartment complex so I couldn't, in theory I could do an anarchist garden but it's private property so you know they, that would just be an ongoing fight. So, uh, so first I became black and then I became unemployed for long stretches. I have actually been served an eviction notice and, uh, and I was just like, well, now wait a minute, I quote unquote did everything right. And a lot of people with my background, way too much education, um, had too much privilege and too much space in the room, uh, had reasonable lives. I'm not talking about, you know, we're reading about them on the Facey book and we're trying to eat them. I mean, they just had reasonable lives, they had, um, and, and not high expectations. And so, so I was looking around at that and I was like, hmm. And then, uh, and, and then I started uh, Decipher City based, based on being able to anonymously collect information in 2017. That was just the hell year for everybody. I'm sure everybody remembers how awful it was. And especially in Austin when the school bond housing, uh, school bond passed and we basically shut down most of the schools in the black and brown area because we don't care about education. Um, and I tried to get, uh, to collect information anonymously for black and brown people and queer people and all the marginalized groups. I don't mention all the marginalized groups and I do apologize. I do not intend to exclude them. The app had a lot more because uh, obviously Muslims are somebody that we're afraid of. And I'm like, I don't even understand what that means. Um, and so like all of these categories were included to gather the information to say, hey, this is how people feel when they are in these spaces. This is going to surprise you, but nobody wanted that information. Then, uh, then basically I was like, oh, well maybe I need to be more active, do more conferences, get this information. No, nobody wants that information uh, except very nice people <laughs> who, uh, who, who basically hear about us through, through word of mouth. And then finally this year, the first, uh, because I was at a bike start with a friend of mine, bike start meaning teaching people how to ride bikes, uh, my friend from the Black Cultural Center said, gosh, I wish we had a bike tour to show people what the neighborhood was like before and after uh, displacement. And I was like, do you? And my friend who, is running the, who runs the bike nonprofit says, does she? And so <laughs> that's how we had two, uh, we recently had uh, three tours, we're about to have our fourth one um, called Woven In Among Us. The reason it was called Woven In Among Us is because one of my very good friends, Faith Weaver, uh, was the one who called me up and said, hey, uh, we need to see this information. So we do these tours, we get the questions that people have, and then I spend all that really boring time finding the, putting the history and the timelines together so that people understand, oh, this is how that happened, oh, this is how that happened. And we understand things like how the news media will say something like, oh, well that was a completely neglected area. It was neglected because people asked you for funds to fix streets and to put street lights and you ignored them. It wasn't actually neglected. Um, things where they say, oh, well, they just don't care about education. 
actually the parent-teacher organization is really active. So, so, so that's what we do. We, we do our best to not do propaganda. And we do take stories, so any experiences that you want to share, I, I, I try to be a platform. I am one person, I know everything can't go viral, but I really, I, I, but people need to hear from people. And why, even though I can't talk that much, why should I? So. Okay, um, I'm trying to figure out how best to approach this, uh, I, maybe in a couple different ways. Um, one is, uh, uh, in the city of Dallas, uh, I've witnessed tons of changes over the last few decades, and um, I'm, I'm kind of old, uh, based on, I guess, the average age in the room, but uh, I remember when, when Uptown was not a, a white, wealthy community. Um, Uptown was uh, the original Black Freedman's Town in Dallas, and the other side was Little Mexico, which was settled by, um, you know, Chicanos. And, and when I moved to Dallas as a young adult, um, you know, those communities were black and brown. And uh, through city policy and uh, primarily city policy, the, uh, you know, it's now um, almost exclusively white and the, the people of color that are still in Uptown um, are in public housing that the public housing authority is now talking about selling to the highest bidder with unclear plans. Um, so, and, and we can see the, the, the money that went into Uptown came from something called the Tax Increment Financing District and uh, there's also, or TIF for short, and TIF districts, um, there's about 25, I think, now. Uptown is a retired TIF because they've already um, completely done mass displacement there. But there are TIF districts in West Dallas and in Oak Cliff, uh, Bishop Arts, um, Deep Ellum, and you can see what the pattern is. And some, some communities uh, now are, are integrated communities um, but only for a little while, probably, <laughs> um, unless we can reverse that. So I think organizing, um, you know, if you, if you live in one of these communities and you can see what's going on, um, uh, organizing at, with the neighborhood associations or at the apartment complex level or plugging into, like, the work that the Texas Tenants Union is doing to try to um, uh, make the city have uh, real affordable housing within, you know, we're giving money away for basically no public benefit. Uh, they have what they call a pretend affordable housing set aside, what I call oh a pretend gosh. affordable housing set aside. We they say, need. you know, 20% of the units have to be affordable to people that make 80% of the area median income or less. Um, of course, they're, they're at the 80%. Most of them refuse to take Section 8 voucher holders. Um, and to, when you do the math on what the city considers affordable or what the, the government as a whole considers affordable at the 80% of area median income, it's an efficiency apartment that, that can rent for more than $1,100 a month. Meanwhile, you know, a minimum wage worker uh, <laughs> obviously doesn't qualify. Most landlords want you to make two and a half, three times the rent. We're dealing with tons of people who are elderly and the, the average Social Security check in 2019 was 1461. I think it's a month. I think it's still less than 1500 a month. 
So we have people that are older all the time contacting us and you know, they might have moved into their apartment that they're in now, you know, five or six years ago and the rent maybe was, you know, six fifty and then it went to seven fifty and then it went to eight fifty and now, you know, it now it's nine fifty. And the conditions might not even be that great, you know. I mean people are paying big bucks for stuff that's really substandard. Um, Anyway, and on top of that, we're seeing landlords tacking on, you know, I mean, rent control is one thing, but uh, there are a whole slew of fees that are being tacked on in addition to rent right now. Mandatory valet trash pickup, 25 bucks a month. Can't afford it? Well, you know, don't live here anymore. Uh, pest control fees, administrative fees tacked on to utility bills. Uh, HBO? Uh, yeah, yeah, mandatory uh, cable packages. Um, those come, you know, uh, rent, uh, uh, um, it, rentals, renter insurance, which obviously is a really good idea in climate change. But you know, the the concept of paycheck to paycheck. I know a lot of people that would love to be there. You know, it's your check comes, and you 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 know you figure out who to pay and who can wait and who to juggle and then go to the food bank or rely on family to get to the end of the month. So the paycheck to paycheck, you know, again, I know a lot of people that would love to be at that spot and people aren't at that spot. So, um, uh, but in terms of an organizing model, um, at times when we have capacity, our organization doesn't have a whole lot. We're, we're kind of very underfunded, um, but we do the best we can with what we got. Um, but, uh, you know, organizing at the apartment complex level and forming tenant associations at the apartment complex level where, you know, you, you've got your own group, uh, the negotiate, collective negotiating arm with, with your management, with the apartment manager, with your own leadership within that property would be a really good way to go. So if you're in multifamily housing and you've got issues, then um, if you want to form a tenant group, I'm, I'm happy to... Um, you know, talk you through the process and help as much as I can. But I think that would be good. And then obviously using that that vehicle to engage with uh, with public officials, elected officials, just as neighborhood groups do, just as any interest group does. So holding your, you know, your state senator, your state rep, your city council person accountable as an organized entity uh, can be a real useful thing to be doing. I feel like this question is everything. Um, so in Austin, uh, which I can speak about better than I can speak to conditions here, um, we know that more than 50% of people living in the city are renters. So we know that we have a widely and deeply felt issue on our hands. The, the Over the last 10 years, rent has gone up 96%. Yep. Um, and we know that in Austin, um, the direct result of practices like that within housing as well as within workplaces and education is that the black population of Austin is actually going down, which is a statistically unlikely trend for a city in the United States right now. It's, it is um, incredible and it is, uh, we see it. It's very felt in our community and it's not just that 
um, people of color, in particular black people, are being pushed out of Austin, it is that our community is being disassembled before our very eyes. So when we talk about housing, I deeply believe that housing is an intersection of so many components. It is where we spend our time. It is where we grow our families. It is where we know our neighbors. It is where we have, ultimately, the grassroots conversations that we can use to shape our very existence. Um, housing and workplaces are the identities that are most common to anyone that you want to organize. Where do you work? Where do you live? Right? Um, when we get that sort of displacement um, in, a, in a community like Austin, what we see is exactly, exactly what has been said already, that our schools are being closed. And it is both because those schools are not being equitably evaluated because of the neighborhoods that they are in, neighborhoods with a higher rate of people of color, but also because um, families, especially families who make a lower income, can't afford to live in Austin, so there aren't enough kids to go to school anymore. And we know that schools, public schools, are so much more than educational institutions, they are community hubs, right? And so we are seeing the breaking apart of structural initiatives or structural components of our communities and um, you know, when we talk about building organizing around this issue of, of housing, of people being able to stay, to be able to put down roots where they want to be, where, where they um, have relationship or have purpose or dignity or um, belonging, it is, I think organizing starts um, really importantly for me with, uh, <laughs> combating notions of being divided up and against one another. Of really having to take a step back and say, how has housing been used to make us be at each other's throats for multiple generations at this point? Um, for example, the school bond, yes. which in the state of Texas, you know, we don't have income tax, we only have property tax. Um, People get so worried, people who are in housing and feel like because they have a mortgage, their housing is stable, which is not an indicator of secure housing at all. Let's and they market real. it the wrong way. That's right. And so when you talk about increasing property taxes, which is the only thing that we can increase in the state of Texas to publicly fund any public goods, because our system is so corrupt and bro broken, people in that category freak out because they are in fact highly insecure a lot of the time. People on fixed incomes, the elderly and the aging, um, people whose wages are not going up with the rate of not just their rent, but their property taxes at this point. We see wages um, increase at an average of 3% across the country. For some people that is, that is the moon, right? For some people it is 1% on average per year and that's not enough. And so when we try to leverage our property taxes, which seems like a good lever to pull, suddenly we understand housing insecurity as not um, an issue of homelessness, as it, is, it is an all of our issue. And it, is, it pushes me towards tenant organizing because even if we come at this from like, who is being affected the most? People of color, people in the LGBTQIA community um, have higher rates of housing displacement than any other communities. Let's pass, okay, let's take the example of the Equality Act, right? It's a good bill, we should pass it. Of course we should pass it. The Equality Act says it will prevent discrimination in housing and workplaces. Will it? 
No, unless you have just cause eviction practices, unless every tenant can go to court, unless every tenant can have a union of their own, we will continue to have discrimination. We'll just call it something else. In the state of Texas, we have preempted pre voucher discrimination, which means for those lucky few individuals who actually get a federal voucher for their housing, the landlord can say, no, you are too poor to live in this building. I don't want you. It's not that that money is any better or worse than anyone else's money. It is that the state of Texas has decided that that is how things go. Policy is important, and holding our elected officials is important, uh, accountable is important, certainly. But there is nothing better than standing with your neighbors and saying, if you don't give it to us, we'll shut the whole rent system down. And I know that we aren't used to thinking about strikes that way, but renters' strikes are powerful tools. Okay. There are lots of us. Wow. Um, we had a couple of more questions, but here's what I'd like to do. Let's change it up a little bit. Um, I'd like to get some audience participation, um, get your blood flowing. Can I get five questions? I'm going to point to you, you'll write down the names, and get you guys to stand over here because everyone's been sitting here for a long time, so we're gonna do speed questioning, okay? Um, so who has a question and would like to come up and ask it? This, this person here? Anybody else? That person there? This person here? All right, we're running with those three. Everyone come up and get in line. <laughs> Let's facilitate some questioning. Yes. In the order in which you were chosen, please. Discussion. And then, uh, because all these are wonderful esteemed guests, whoever feels that they can most accurately answer the question, go for it. Okay? All right, thank you for recognizing me. Um, I guess my question is about uh, cooperative housing. Uh, what can we as, I guess, DSA slash people in government as well, from a policymaking standpoint, do to help uh, cooperative housing proliferate? So, what is one big difference between single family housing and rental housing? Two words, the occupancy ordinance. The occupancy ordinance is around all cities and that says that you can only have up to four people in an apartment that has two bedrooms. Well, everybody in this room knows that, you know, yeah, okay, sometimes, but most of the time, you know, you can fit maybe more than two people, and especially if you are advocates, you want to make it easy, and since none of us have resources, that is the only resource that we can share. So what we really need to look at is how the occupancy ordinance has played a part in all of these rental organizations. I personally don't think it should exist, because I believe that if you close a door, you are in your home, and that's nobody's business but yours. Also, if my favorite example is the Duggars. They have a house, and they have a whole bunch of kids, and it's them, and they can do that because they live in their single-family house. If single-family house homeowners can pack up their houses, 
then quite frankly, if landlords are getting rent, that should really be the end of the conversation. We should not be getting in people's businesses and telling them, oh, well, you need to only have, because you won't be comfortable. I didn't ask you what you wanted. I said we wanted to close the door. So occupancy ordinance uh, abolition is my first, is, is my, my best way to combat that. Thank you um, so much for that yeah. question. And is there another, I, can I weigh in? Or sure. Just real quickly. The, I think um, in some parts of the country there are, there are multifamily structures, big buildings owned cooperatively by the people who live in them. So it's, it's uh, not quite a condominium because they don't own their own little four walls and ceiling. They own the whole building cooperatively. And it's a model that's been, um, you know, some some have low-income housing restrictions that when they decide to move, if there's if there's they want to move out of the building, they can sell their share in the cooperative, and so they they're called limited equity cooperatives in order to try to maintain affordability over the the long term. Um, it's not really a model that's been used much in Texas. Um, there's there's I know there's one property in Oak Cliff that was built with HUD money that's called a housing cooperative, but it's not really a traditional cooperative model. So uh, is, that, is, is that what you were referring to when, yeah, so from other, you know, people that lived in other parts of the country, you know, uh, have, you know, maybe experienced, have, did you ever live in one? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, yeah, I think looking at different uh, ways for tenant ownership and like a right of first purchase is, is something that, um, uh, could be used and maybe help people remain in, in gentrifying neighborhoods, like when the landlord's ready to flip, when the rent landlord's ready to sell, when the developer's ready to come in and the property's for sale, giving a right of first purchase to the people occupying that space. And, you know, instead of giving, you know, 40,000 a unit to people like Roger Staubach to put up housing that's not affordable in West Dallas, you know, how about a home ownership program and have money go to allow people to remain in their communities rather than be displaced from them. Thank you. Next question, please. Hello, uh, I'm Jimmy. I became a communist when 2006, and let me just say it is very exciting to see all of you here now. Uh, do all of you know, and I'm, for all the talent panelists, um, do you all know what Texas House District 33 is? No. It's where all the Democratic votes have been stuffed in DFW. Oh. So Stop 6 in Oak Cliff and North Arlington. And there's a section okay. of... Okay. Um, and there was a primary the other day, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> uh, and I was... Um, I had all... We all have wives, and I didn't get involved immediately into the uh, congressional race there, but um, when I did, it was just him, do you, do you got, uh, Mark Vesey, you know who Mark Vesey mm -hmm. is? Uh, the um, candidate running against him, it was just him, his mom, and his brother camp run, uh, doing his campaign against Mark Vesey. Uh, and uh, the Democrats in this district outnumber Republicans almost three to one. Um, and I was... So I was trying to like lure Bernie uh, volunteers into Stop Six to help me campaign for, so I could get people to learn about what their choices were in this election. And um, so, you're running for the Texas 25. 
It was uh, U.S. Congress. Right. Yeah. Julie Oliver ran in mm -hmm. 2018. Um, and... Julie Oliver ran a campaign, and there was a lot of excitement around that, right? Uh, and a lot of races in Texas are just like, of course we, we must attack on all fronts in every election, but Texas House 33 is a safe democratic district. It's also- I'm so sorry, we're just, we're trying so, to wrap up the meeting. What is the question um, exactly? What, I, I guess, I was just what your view on safe de democratic house districts are and how we where should we organize I suppose okay I think so that's you, your story sure. yeah. <laughs> yeah I think that um that that is a question that's going to appeal to a lot of people in in the coming months and years and it's a question that we should keep um close watch on and really do what you're saying, support candidates that we believe in. What I think um, was interesting for me, just like in the immediate experience, is how important it is to continue to do issue-based, like policy-based campaigning and community organizing in the interim, because as you are trying to tap into these other sort of like coalition members and other organizers to support, you found someone you believe in, you really wanna help. Um, one of the greatest things that we can do is have folks on the ground who are already like raring to go and know exactly what they want in a candidate who are willing to push the envelope in that direction and who have experience and relationship, who are trusted in our communities, who have invested in them, um, a whole lot of people because even when we get you know even as elections may go our way in coming years hopefully both to win those elections and to win the policies we're going to have to keep organizing so i think that ex what you're saying is really really important and that we should continue to watch out for and engage on our terms and to continue to grow a community that says these are our terms. This is what we're looking for. This is what we'll show up for and nothing less and we have so many people with us on our side. One quick thing to remember, especially since we had an obnoxious display of arrogance in the most recent presidential election, if they have resources and they aren't doing it until they are elected, then do not elect them. That's the biggest thing I can think of because quite frankly, if you have the money, you should be doing something with it. Uh, we're all broke. What were you doing this entire time? So that's, so that's my way. All right, so um, in the interest of time, Alex was the last person that I called, but um, maybe they'll hang around afterwards so that we can talk and remember what's great about these panelist is that we're trying to create a connection with them. So you don't have to ask all of your questions right now, but we can still keep the conversation going and start to do the actual work. So Alex, please go ahead. Um, I guess I had a question about um, homelessness and also like the mom's demand housing thing where basically, and yeah. I know there was some homeless organizing in Oakland where you basically like there, there's a point in housing organizing where you just, you squat and you start taking land and then that gets a little bit more into like the 
direct revolutions, mm-hmm. <laughs> illegal stuff, which, I mean, how, how, how to, like, even stuff like people making a community garden on like a something that someone owns but isn't using like how can we start taking land and giving it to people who need it and not just people who are like speculators yeah. just do it yeah. yeah yeah i think just, it's a just do it kind yeah. of thing yeah. i mean and um yeah the the moms for housing in oakland was extremely ex- inspiring and um you know, uh, it's it's been a while, but uh, there was a time when um, boards came down and boarded up public housing in West Dallas. Uh, this probably was the late '80s, and um, and and homeless people moved in. Um, so uh, it, it was part of an overall campaign that was going on at that time. But uh, yeah, no, I think people just uh, I don't. <laughs> Uh, people probably it's going to take organizing first homeless people uh, that are willing to to do that or others that are willing to join them in doing that Um, and it would be uh, you know I'd love to see it I don't know that I can commit to doing it but um, there's I think the 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 homeless community is primarily surrounded by uh, city or federally funded nonprofit organizations that aren't really, um, they're not organizers, they're service providers. And, um, but, um, and they want permission for everything. Yeah. You know what permission is code for? Resources. Yeah. So I don't, I don't see it happening among those that are working with homeless people now. I think it would have to take somebody else that will come in to do that organizing if it's going to happen. So I'm going to say something really not sexy right now. Um, People experiencing homelessness who are camping under overpasses are occupying public land already. Yep. Um, It's not great. It really sucks. Uh, And in, in the campaign that we got to be part of to decriminalize homelessness in Austin, one of the core components was to decriminalize camping, which means sitting or lying outside with your belongings. We got that done, and it still remains in effect for the most part uh, (laughs) on city land. Um, But Governor Abbott came back, and he um, he leveraged TxDOT, uh, the 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 highway department, um, because overpasses are actually the property of the state, and so they started sweeping camps. And if people wouldn't move, they would get arrested. And they didn't have the chance necessarily to pack up their belongings. Um, They started pushing people to this camp um, in Far East Austin, which was a parking lot with a spigot. I want to be careful to say that while things like squatting have been historically like profound and powerful actions that people have chosen to take to ask the most vulnerable folks who are not just in need of housing but in need of healthcare, in need of legal services oftentimes who are already only getting an average of three hours of sleep per night to be on the front lines of something illegal i think we have to ask ourselves um, how we want to surround that responsibly, uh, how we stand with people who are making those choices, 
um, and and to ask people what they want. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Instead <laughs> of, um, you know, like for some of us, squatting sounds real good. Um, but for a lot of our friends who are sleeping out right now, it may not. Uh, and so making sure that we're, we're part of organizing, right? Part of um, the kind of organizing that I think we want to do is, is following the lead of the, the folks who are feeling the issue most directly that we want to work on right now. So it's, a, it's a, like, a, I'm in favor of this, but also just like, let's be careful. Yeah, no, I definitely second that. I mean, it's gotta be people willing to, to do it and doing it with their eyes open and, you know, but if people are ready to do that, yeah. then, um, you know, they might be ready to do that. And I, and I, I, I know there's uh, unpublicized squatting going on. I mean, Moms for Housing did it as a part of an organizing campaign, and it, and it was obviously very successful. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, it, it happens now in an in a informal, um, unpublicized way, wherever there are vacant places. Um, I'm sure you can, well, not in all of them, but you know, I know that there are people that uh, will will move in when you know when the boards go up. They know how to take boards down and how to be in the space until it gets demolished. And digging in the dirt as long as you're aware that. Uh, and you know, the nice thing about living in Texas, we've got a lot of sun. Uh, things that grow real easy, like tomatoes and basil, and looking up the stuff so that, you know, you're just growing plants. There is nothing wrong with growing plants while still making sure that basically those are things people can eat. Like, yeah, that's a way to be safe while practicing your anarchy, which is kind of ironic, but, but seriously, coming, uh, considering, you know, food, water, food, water, and shelter. If you can do one thing, if you can figure out how to do one thing, like I said, that's why I was talking about the occupancy ordinance, that's why I'm like, dude, anarchist gardens. We hate grass anyway. Grass does nothing for anyone. They, what's it? And it might actually make their land look nice, so maybe people can eat before they put up the condos. I don't know. <laughs> um, thank you to all of our panelists. Um, I want to say two things. I know that you've been sitting, but this is such a priority and so passionate to me. So thank you for being a really great audience. I know that we've run over a little bit. Um, first, I wanna thank our panelists for coming to speak with us. Um, this was so valuable and I hope that we continue this relationship so that we can actually start organizing in North Texas. The two things that I want you to walk away from this meeting with, housing is Affordable housing, safe housing is radical socialist work. Dealing with people one-on-one -on -one saves lives. Good housing saves people's lives and there's nothing more socialist in the world. Um, the very, very last thing that I wanna talk about, um, I feel like I used to spend a lot of time in bars, uh, really drunk, talking about uh, running for office. And uh, that never came to fruition because I really didn't have the gusto or the guts or the know-how. Um, and I wanna take a second to thank Heidi 
for inspiring the fuck out of me. <laughs> she may not have won, but she won with every single person that her campaign touched. She engaged people that other politicians don't want to engage. She tried to build and did build very real working class power. And so we have a little card for you. And I just wanted to say that. Um, you really inspired me. And after such a tough campaign, I really thank you for coming up from Austin. Everyone, I want a real round of applause for Heidi. All right, peace, I'm out. <laughs> so if you want to live in Dallas proper, Dallas city limits, the average apartment, one bedroom, is going to run you about $1,400. I read an article a few months back that said, essentially, you need to make $100,000 per year to live comfortably in the city of Dallas, where most people make about $40,000 a year, and most Texans actually live in poverty, that is absolutely unacceptable. When COVID-19 hit the scene, we were already in the midst of a housing crisis. Many people have been pushed out of the city, and many more people are actually homeless because of these prices. What we can do in the face of this pandemic is use the rhetoric that's being used across the nation, the idea that nobody should be made homeless and nobody should fear paying rent in the midst of a pandemic, and we can universalize that so that after all of this is over, we can find affordable housing for all of our comrades we can proclaim across the board, no matter what is going on, that housing is a human right and nobody should be flustered and afraid, not knowing where they're going to live. Thanks for listening to this episode of Yolidarity, a podcast by DSA North Texas. To stay plugged in for previous and future episodes, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And to find out more about the Democratic Socialists of America, the work we're doing, and how to get involved, head to our website at dsantx.org. And as always, solidarity forever.